Our second reading is from the prophet Hosea, chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out, and his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. The word of the Lord. We continue on in a series that we began last week called Loving the Unlovable. It's an attempt to look at the minor prophets Hosea and Amos and Jonah, and specifically to look at God's love for those who don't deserve God's love. Last week we started in the book of Hosea, and today we finish the book of Hosea, all 14 chapters in two weeks. And if you read through the whole of Hosea from 1 to 14, One of the things you find is that again and again and again, Hosea is focused on Israel as a nation, its guilt and its sin, and warnings of God's judgment that are to come. God gives his indictment on Israel in chapter 11, verse 5. He clearly states what Israel's problem is. He says, they have refused to return to me and my people are bent on turning away from me. So if you wanted to sum up everything that Israel had done wrong, is they had turned from God. They had turned their back on God. They were not willing to return to him. And if you read through Isaiah, I mean Hosea, you get the description of what's going on here. Israel is trusting in other nations for their security and support. They're turning and bowing and worshiping idols, statues. They have made other gods besides God their source of security, hope, and salvation. And so God declares his judgment on them in Hosea. Israel, because of your sin, I, your God, will abandon you. You have abandoned me, I will let you go. And the result of God pulling back from Israel is that the nations around them were going to conquer them. They were going to destroy them, flatten them, and leave them completely obliterated. When God pulls back, evil comes. And in a sense, that's what we get throughout the Bible is the description of what God does in judgment is primarily pulling back and giving us over to our own desires. Romans 1, Paul gives a summary of the nature of humanity in sin and the nature of God's wrath and justice. And he says the wrath of God is revealed in that God gives us over to the desires of our heart. 
So think about that for a second. We think of wrath as God coming and bringing fire and brimstone, right? Romans 1 says the wrath of God is even now revealed in our lives. God's wrath is revealed because he says, if you want to go that way, go ahead. Just keep going. See where it leads. This is where Raul Dahl in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is so spot on. If you look at some of those characters in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, like Veruca Salt or Augustus Gloop, these horrible, nasty creature kids who are gluttonous or demanding, and in the end, what happens? They get what they want. You're desperate for chocolate? Go ahead, Augustus, dive into the chocolate river. He hands them over, in a sense, to what they demand and desire. And that's, in many ways, the description of hell. We think of hell by the metaphoric descriptions that are given in the Bible, like fire, darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But one of the most clear descriptions is there in Romans 1, where it is they are given over, given over to their own desires forever. You want to live apart from me? See where that goes forever. C.S. Lewis summed it up when he said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. But Hosea is not just indictment and judgment. It is also promise. And that's what we're going to look at mostly this morning. It's a promise to Israel, as was read in chapter 14, of restoration. There will come a time when Israel will be returned to the land, and the land will be fruitful and will grow, and there will be salvation brought. And it's important to look at these things because God's promise of restoration, his grace and his mercy, are what enable each of us to repent and believe in him. And when we focus on God's grace and his mercy and his promise to us, it also enables us to love and forgive others. We're going to look at both of those things this morning. So first, we're looking at chapter 14 in the first couple of verses. It's Hosea speaking, and he's calling out to Israel. He's making a plea to them. He says to them, return to the Lord, return to the Lord your God, because you have stumbled in your iniquity. I want you to return to the Lord, and here's what you're going to do, Israel. You're going to take these words with you. What you're going to say to the Lord is, take away all iniquity. When you go to the Lord, come and confess your sin. Admit what you have done wrong. Seek forgiveness. Come to the Lord seeking forgiveness. That's always the first place to start when we come to the Lord. Come seeking grace and forgiveness. In other words, we need to come before the Lord humbly and confess our sin. And that's, in a sense, what happens in verse 3. The confession is there. Hosea is speaking it on behalf of Israel. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. It's maybe a little bit helpful to break this apart because these sound kind of strange confessions of sin. But Assyria will not save us. Israel was making covenantal relationships with foreign nations, trusting in other nations to provide protection and security. When they did that, they ended up worshiping the other nations' gods. It was political alignment for salvation. Not that anybody has ever turned to politics as a way of saving the world, 
But if you did, God is saying, that's something you need to let go of. No president, no getting the right people on the Supreme Court, no perfect Congress can save you. He goes on to say, we will not ride on horses, which sounds like a strange thing, as if horses are evil and bad. But really, horses was a metaphor for elements of war. It was the way of saying, we will not trust in fighter jets or intercontinental ballistic missiles or tanks. We will not trust in military power to give us security, to guarantee our future. We will not trust in power, military or otherwise. Power alone cannot give us what we need. And then very clearly, we will not say our God to the works of our hands, literally statues, because as they made allegiances with these other nations, they began to build statues, idols, other gods that they worshipped. It's helpful for us, though, because we don't tend to worship statues, but works of our hands is probably a good way to describe what we do put our trust in, which is ourselves. I'm smart enough. I'm pretty sharp. I've got everything under control. I don't really need God. Israel is confessing their sin. And notice what Israel is not confessing here. They're not confessing immorality. Right? We think of sin as committing adultery or stealing from somebody or lying or murdering. And we have a litany of sins that we describe as sin. And it's why most of us can get away with feeling pretty good because when we look at the crimes in the community, we say, well, I haven't done any of those. Besides speeding, I mean, I haven't broken a crime, right? But none of those are mentioned here. What's mentioned is root sin, other trusts, things besides God that we put our faith in. Saving faith is admitting our root sin, our false gods, and the places where we trust in ourselves and not in him. And it's also turning to God and trusting him alone as God and Lord and Savior, our only hope, our only salvation. Hosea appeals to Israel, return to the Lord, confess your sin, put your trust in him, admit the depth of your sinfulness. But in the very next words, it's God speaking. In verses four through seven, the Lord begins to speak to Israel. From the first person, he says, I. It's promises of God for restoration. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. Hear these things. God is promising salvation. I will heal their apostasy. Their sin has resulted in judgment, but I am going to forgive them. The damage that their sin has done to their lives, I will make whole again. I am a God who heals. I will love them freely. Not because they deserve love. They are an adulterous nation. I love them anyhow. That's what grace is. And I will be the due to Israel. In the ancient Near East, the arid lands depended on the heavy dew to water the, 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 the crops. So basically, the dew was almost like rain, the way that the heavy dew fell in the mornings. And the Lord is saying, I will be your provider, your sustainer. 
God is giving them promise after promise, healing, love, provision. And he goes on to use agricultural imagery, which was very common to that ancient world, a promise of blossoming and taking root and spreading out and roots and beauty and fragrance and blossoming and flourishing. All these words would have evoked something in the Israelites' mind. This idea of life and growth and fruitfulness was was bound up in a Hebrew word, which we've talked about here, shalom. Shalom, of course, meant not just peace, it meant wholeness, completion. Everything being just as it was supposed to be. God's promise is you will have shalom. Emotional, social, spiritual, intellectual wholeness. How many of us can even say we've gone through an entire day feeling that way? Physically, maybe we're well, but emotionally, we're broken. Spiritually, maybe we're well, and physically, our body is breaking down. It seems like at every area, it's hard to go through a few moments of complete shalom. God's promise is a future of complete wholeness. And I want you to notice something here. At this point, Hosea is prophesying and preaching, and Israel has not yet repented and returned to the Lord. That's important. God promises healing, forgiveness, love, growth, life, flourishing, and they haven't done anything yet. But that's the way God operates. God's loving grace always precedes authentic repentance and faith. Ask anyone who's come to faith in their adult life to look back on their life before they came to faith, and you know what they will tell you? Is they saw the hand of God working through a grandmother when they were a kid, through a conversation with a friend in college, through the grace of God, letting them hear and be ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ at just the right time. It's never out of nowhere. The Spirit is working in our hearts. It's his grace working to draw us to him, to draw us to repent. As I was reflecting on this, it made me think about the prodigal son parable that Jesus tells. It's why I had us read it. In the parable of the prodigal son, we get a loving father whose loving embrace of his son enables his son's confession of sin. You know the story pretty well if you've been in churches before, but if you haven't, it goes something like this. The younger son says to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, which was basically like saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money that's going to come to me when you're dead. He takes the money and goes off to a far distant land and squanders it. Eventually, he is completely destitute, and he has nothing to live on. He's starving to death, and he realizes, wait a minute. Back in my father's house, there was food. He can provide for me. He remembers a little bit about his father, and he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to return and go to my father. And then he comes up with a plan. I'm going to go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned. He's going to confess his sin. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Get that. He doesn't think he's worthy to be called a son. 
He has an understanding of his father that is because I've sinned the way I have, I should no longer be a son. And in that culture back then, if you did a sin like this, you had to pay restitution. To give honor back to your father, to restore his his honor and status in the community. And so the son comes up with a plan. I will go back not as a son, but as a hired servant, a day laborer in your fields. And maybe over the course of my life, dad, I can pay you back. And maybe one day I can be your son. So he goes back with this whole plan in his head. But even before a word is uttered out of his mouth, we get the story that the father, the father runs. We get this in in verse 20 through 23 of Luke 15. The father runs and embraces and kisses his son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You've heard this as well. Men in the ancient Near East do not run. This father runs. They do not show affection like this. This father tackles his son and he hugs him and he kisses him. You know, the father has no idea why the son's coming back. Is he coming back to boast? I've had a great time all over the world. You suckers are back here. Hope you're enjoying life on the farm. He has no idea if that's why he's coming back? Is he coming back to ask for more money? Dad, I need more. He doesn't know that he's coming repentant. It doesn't matter. He's coming. And the Father is a God of love. He comes and he runs and hugs his son. And then the son confesses, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. And he's not able to get out the next words. I've got this plan, Dad. I'm, I'm going to pay you back. All that money I wasted, I'm going to pay you back. That never comes out. It's almost like the son is confessing his sin and the father says, all right, get a robe, put a robe on him, which is what a son wore to say you're re-inherited. Put a ring on his finger, meaning you could do business for the family again. Put shoes on his feet because on my property, only slaves do not have shoes. And you are not a slave, you are my son. And kill the fattened calf. We need to celebrate. This son of mine is back. The father's lavish love and forgiveness come before the son ever cleans himself up and gets his life in order. In fact, the father's loving embrace comes before the son ever confesses his sin. And if you come today thinking you've got to get your life in order before you can get right with God, you've got it backwards. God wraps you in his arms. Experience his grace and love for you and let that draw you into the relationship and life that you're called to. Don't wait to get cleaned up. You're never going to get there anyhow. It's not... It's not the son's confession of his sin that triggers the father's forgiveness. It's rather the father's love and grace that enables the son to freely confess. And that's why you and I need to know God and know God as our loving father. Now, we need to know God in his glory, in his holiness, in his justice. That's what will cause us to come to our senses and realize we're trying to do it on our own. 
But we also need to know God in his love and his mercy that enables us to repent and turn to him and trust him. And that's why week in and week out here at CCV, we tend to go back to who God is and what he's done. The basic gospel message, Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's the basic gospel message and we go back to it again and again and again because that gospel message softens our hard hearts. It enables us to repent. It deepens our faith in a God that loves us. It ends up driving our life and transforming our relationships. Let's think about how when we go back to this loving Father, his promises of healing and restoration, his grace and mercy, how that changes our relationships. Let's look at an area like forgiving others. Forgiveness can be particularly difficult for some of us. Others of us just deal with it on a surface level day in and day out. Most of us have a natural reactive unforgiveness. Our natural reactive unforgiveness is when we are offended by a spouse or a roommate or a sibling or a good friend. Most of us fall into one of two camps. It's either the lash out attackers or the silent defend ourselves people. There's those of us who when we feel like we've been offended by a family member or a friend, we lash out and we're gonna put them in their place. And there's those of us like me, my preferred is just to be silent and walk away. It looks like I'm being above the issue, but I'm really just defending myself, aren't I? It's a, it's a reactive unforgiveness. Hopefully, we don't stay in that and we res- return to the person that we've had a, a breach of relationship with and we restore the relationship with them. I'm sorry I walked away. I'm sorry I lashed out at you. But some of us in here, and if we haven't already, some of us will down the line, we have dealt with deep pain, deep hurt and offense. You've dealt with infidelity or betrayal. You have a past that includes abuse. You've dealt with loss because of somebody else. And if that's where you are today, as we're talking about this, I do not mean to try to give you answers that are going to solve everything. Those deep wounds that many of us have dealt with are heavy. And you need to be able to sit in that heaviness and yet see the God of grace and forgiveness and maybe what he would enable in us. You know, when we deal with deep pain and hurt, we desire justice because we've been wronged, things need to be made right. And that sense of justice is they must pay. They've hurt me, I need to hurt them. Things need to become even. And of course, our anger moves us to bitterness and desires for vengeance or revenge. And you can see how that plays out globally. Many wars are fought from the wars that broke out in Iraq to Rwanda before that to the Balkans back to World War I where histories of offense that were never forgiven became cycles of vengeance and revenge because nobody was willing to enter in and say, I forgive. And even if it doesn't get to war, if we let unforgiveness build in us, it hardens our heart. And eventually we get to a point where we have a hard time loving others or being loved. 
Often this happens in marriages. There maybe isn't even a big infidelity. It's just a series of offenses that were never forgiven. And that lack of forgiveness builds over time. It becomes harder to love the other person and receive love. And then every single shoe that's kicked off in the wrong place, every light that's left on, every clearing of the throat, every refrigerator door that sits open a little too long becomes an intentional offense. You know, I've heard when you find out about infidelity that it can be like a kick or a knife to the stomach. But many marriages dissolve into lifelessness through a dozen paper cuts a day. And eventually you bleed to death. When we hold on to unforgiveness, we end up dehumanizing the other person. It makes vengeance easier. You see, there's always a reason for why I might offend you, even as there's never a good reason for why you might offend me. Take, for instance, gossip. If I gossip about you, I want to be given a fair shake. Look, I'm sorry, I was with some friends, we were joking around, I shouldn't have talked about you that way. Or it was a mistake, I apologize. There's always a good reason for why I might gossip. Now, if you're gossiping about me, you are a gossip. I will caricature you as the sin that you have offended me with. You are only a liar. You are always a cheat. And that's all you'll ever be. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale Divinity School. He wrote in a book, Exclusion and Embrace, and, and he was very familiar with all the wars that went on in the Balkans and dealt with them firsthand. And he writes about forgiveness a lot. In Exclusion and Embrace, he writes, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So how do we forgive others? Well, the Bible says it very clearly in Ephesians 4.32. We're forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Sounds really easy. But the reality is most of us, even as Christians, separate these two. You see, we want God's forgiveness for us, and we'd rather have God's vengeance for them. But in this simple sentence is also the gospel. God in Christ forgave you. And we go to the gospel as a model for our forgiveness of others, the motivation and even the power to forgive. We've said this before to summarize the gospel message. I am more sinful than I'm willing to admit, but I'm more loved in Jesus Christ than I dare to imagine. When I let that sink in, the gospel is a great equalizer. It humbles me. I am more sinful than I'm willing to admit. And the only reason I'm loved is because of Jesus Christ. In other words, I am no less of a sinner than the person who has offended me. When I grasp the gospel and dwell in the gospel and let that sink in, it changes my view of the other person because it changes my view of me. It's a perspective-shifting thing. You see, I've been forgiven in Jesus Christ not because I deserve it, 
but because Jesus Christ paid my penalty. He took my judgment. So I can potentially forgive somebody else even if they don't deserve it. And in fact, the Bible even seems to suggest that we're called to forgive people first even when justice has not been fully accomplished or even when they have never apologized to us. Speaking in another place about forgiveness, Miroslav Volf puts it this way, we give forgiveness unconditionally because that's what God does. God forgives us without waiting for us to repent. On the cross, God acted on our behalf to forgive our sins. And what he ends up talking about is looking at the cross, what you find is God shows his love for us on the cross. God forgives us through Jesus' death on the cross even before you and I have repented. If you think about it, Jesus' death on the cross offers us forgiveness before we've even sinned, right? Christ's death 2,000 years ago pays for my sin that I'm gonna do this afternoon. I will hurt people. I will think bad things. I will be selfish. I will sin against heaven and against you this afternoon. And the cross paid for that. Even before I've sinned, he has forgiven me if I put my trust in him. That's a place to go back to in order to trigger a heart that's willing to forgive others. So as I dwell on the cross, as I think about what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, it softens my hard-heartedness. It breaks down my pride and it changes my heart towards both God and others. And this becomes the sort of God I want to return to again and again. In Hosea 14, verses 1 through 3, what I said at the beginning, Hosea gives a plea for Israel to return and repent. But there was a sentence I kept off that was at the end of this little plea that Hosea gives. It seems to not fit in. Return to the Lord. Confess your sin to the Lord. Say all the wrong things you have done. In you, the orphan finds mercy. But I think this is a summary statement because it describes God as the loving father who loves the orphan and it puts the right perspective on us that we are no different than an orphan. You see, an orphan in the ancient world was completely helpless. They were totally dependent. They were without hope in a future. They needed somebody to come in and protect and provide for them or they would die. And Hosea is saying we need to cultivate a, an orphan spirit to recognize how needy and humble and totally dependent we are. And this is difficult because we are Americans and we have an independent spirit. We like to be capable and self-sufficient. It's how I wrongly enter Home Depot every time I go there, as if I don't need to ask what I'm looking for. I have no idea what I'm doing in a Home Depot. I'm a construction and fix-it disaster, but I walk around for a good 20 minutes before I'll ask a question. I want to look like I know what I'm doing. Why? Have to prove I'm self-sufficient. I'm capable. I can find that little thing that's shaped like this that goes on that other thing. 
you know, washer, sir? <laughs> sure. Many of us go around with this mantra in our head, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. That is sub-Christian. God does not help those who help themselves. That is religion and not the gospel. God helps the helpless. God is with the needy. God is a father to those who are orphaned. God saves those who admit they need saving. It is the orphan who finds mercy. And it is a loving father who loves the orphan that we go back to. It is the God who promises restoration to Israel, who offers forgiveness and salvation to sinners. It is the God who runs to embrace and kiss and restore us to him. It is that God that we turn to for the first time if we've never done it, or again and again because we fall on our face every day. Let's pray. God, it is upon your mercy and grace that we throw ourselves. We do not need a little help. We need salvation. We do not need to be understood. We need forgiveness. Give us the grace to see that and to feel your loving embrace for us again and again. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you.